Well, hello and welcome to Armart's first monthly podcast. Um, I'm Phil Worms, Group Marketing Director, and it's my job to uh, steer you through this podcast. And I'm joined by uh, four of my colleagues um, who I'm about to introduce. Um, it's Jonathan Williams. <laughs> Jonathan Williamson, who's Armart's resident Jedi and head of client services. We have our PR guru and television trailblazer, Jane Robertson. We have an evangelical, and if I could say it, it would help, and globetrotting Bill Strain, our chief technology officer. And last, by no means least, the maestro of our development department, Anne Bryson, who's our group technical manager. So, we're going to get the ball rolling and we're going to discuss some stories which caught our eye. And the one that caught my eye most of all, really, was the fact that House of Cards, the hugely popular Netflix entertainment series starring Kevin Spacey, and I'm sure is available on Netflix to download, um, came as a result of some data analysis that was undertaken. Anybody have any views on whether this type of data analysis, of matching audience reaction to actor, will be the way that we uh, go forward with our viewing habits. Yeah. Um, hi folks, it's Jonathan here. Um, I think the, the Netflix stuff's pretty interesting. Um, I think the, the level of analytics that they're able to, to leverage to, to make decisions on what programs to, to basically record and what programs to release is, is quite powerful. It's a really powerful message for cloud computing in general. Um, you know, the volume of data that they've got and their hands on the number of views and number of visitors that they've got. Um, is really quite astonishing. So I think it will be um, the next big step for big data, really. Um, the next big story for big data will be the way that Netflix have utilised what they've got their hands on, um, and I think other companies should be learning from it at this stage. I think it's important because um, it's Jane here, by the way, folks. Uh, the the fact that they'd actually looked at their audience base before they almost sort of commissioned it, hadn't they? And they realised that the the director, people, so many people were following the director and what he'd been doing. So many people followed Kevin Spacey and looked at his material that he'd, you know, that he'd filmed and uh, and, and been involved with. So it was actually, it's not the sort of analytics after the event. It was the analytics that helped them actually create an event um, that, that, that was that they almost knew was going to be successful before they'd even actually broadcast the thing. And that's the thing, I think, isn't it? Maybe Bill, you can say a bit more about this about the fact that. So many organisations have got data within them that they haven't actually accessed so far that they can then use. You know, perhaps they don't realise that it's useful to them and how they turn that into yeah, useful data. Absolutely, and and the the interesting thing is how useful large amounts of very simple data actually is. Um, and it's traditionally not stuff that we would have stored because the technologies haven't really been uh, available up till now to do this. And um, th this point was sort of brought home to me recently when uh, I was travelling and I was about to leave for the airport and my phone popped up, my Google Android phone, and it told me that I had better leave the hotel I was in now in order to return my rental car to the airport in order to get my flight. Um, now, I had never told Google about any of this, and Google had actually picked up these events from my Gmail, tied it together, and very handily popped this piece of information up, which was 
quite useful because I wasn't planning to actually leave for another half hour and it was already telling me I was late. But on the one hand, it was a positive thing in that, you know, very handy, thanks very much Google. But on the other hand, quite scary because it just shows you the sort of thing that Google knows about me <laughs> and God knows what else they know about me as well. So it is, it is really quite impressive what you can do with a large amount of very simple data. Do you not think, though, it's an interesting point there that you mentioned there, Bill, that you hadn't physically or, or consciously interacted with Google to give them that data, but they had it. Yes. And it's almost a bit like Netflix understanding that they had so many customers or you know the viewers that watched a particular type of program starring a particular thing. Do you not think we're in a position here where people will start becoming data-averse in we will all be going, I'm never turning my mobile phone on again because I'm being spied on by X, Y, and Z, or, or do you think... I, I think it depends on, it really depends on, I guess, what the, the consumer's getting at the end of it. And if you look at it, shops, uh, supermarkets have been doing this for a while now, where, you know, if you've got a loyalty card, you go in there, they'll take note, you know, they're tracking everything that you're buying, everything that you, you're purchasing, and then basically suggesting things to you and trying to promote products and services that, you know, they think that you might be interested in, or if you weren't already interested in, by them suggesting to it, they're, they're pushing, you know, those ideas towards you. Um, and there's a lot of new sort of concepts with the whole sort of, um, you know, social media and marketing where, you know, they're, they're introducing apps that the minute you walk over the threshold of a shop, they know you're in that shop. So and so things popping. start popping up with the, oh, you'd be interested in this. And, you know, it, it's certainly the way forward. And every business is the same. The more data that you you analyze that you understand the more you understand about your customers the better place you are to actually give them what they want and obviously make you know decent sort of profits for them. I think we've seen the first first sort of advent of it um, actually in the movies about seven eight years ago when Minority Report came out with Tom Cruise and there's two or three scenes within that movie where you actually see you know he's walking into a shop and they recognize them by retina scan and we're not quite at that stage yet we're not quite at the point where we're being recognized by biometrics but that's not far away you know, we've already got iPhones which are um, encoding using your, your fingerprint um, already um, and that's obviously going to expand into things like your banking logins and stuff like that's going to be extended to that. So I think the data that's being picked up is so natural, it's been, it's been captured so naturally that I don't think people will ever, certainly, not, certainly there'll be a small percentage of us where we will be consciously objecting to that level of data being harvested from us, but I think the vast majority of people wouldn't give um, you know, uh, any real concern to it at all. Well, it, it is interesting. So I think one of the um, the, the key skills which uh, the industry, our industry, is saying that it's going to require over the next X number of uh, years are data analysts. Yeah. Because um, I think it, what it has proved, I mean, fortunately, House of Cards was, was a great success. So Netflix have got their investment back and their analytical investment back uh, probably 20-fold. Um, but they could have easily, if they've just dived in on a on a whim, come up and make completely the wrong sort of uh, sort of things, you know. And we could have ended. I mean, if they'd have looked at, I would say, a majority of viewing habits, uh, goodness knows what would have been uh, <laughs> yeah. created. Maybe Naked Football would be uh, a film that we might see at some stage in the future, post nine o'clock. But uh, I think uh, one thing that, that it does show is that it's not something that you can dip your toe into. You you really do need to understand as many of the parameters as possible. Um, and that it is um, something that's not going to leave us. But it's an interesting one because we're talking here about uh, how our data is currently being used 
Uh, and uh, a story that, that's recently cropped up, which is quite interesting, is um, Vint Cerf uh, from Google, who um, is claiming that we are heading for the lost digital age because we are creating so much data. Um, and uh, quite interesting, I think uh, interoperability um, was mentioned during his pieces in the as we move on from operating system to operating system to operating system, so we're leaving so many redundant devices storing bits of data. So if we've moved from a particular iPhone and we've just left everything on it and just started afresh on a new one because we can't get the apps to work or, or whatever it might be, what happens to the stuff that, that we left? And would an archaeologist, archaeolo I nearly said that correctly, um, in 3,000 years ever be able to understand quite what we did? Um, it's not quite as easy as finding 940 scrolls in a cave somewhere, um, which you can then analyse and determine what's happened. This could be our entire life from the 21st century onwards, being just very, very disparate bits of data that somebody's going to try and pull together. So on the one hand, we seem to have lots of data that we can analyse and create uh, films from. On another point of view, we have data, but it, it is so disparate that we're never actually going to be able to uh, understand what went on when we were watching our Netflix program. So any views on that? Is, is Vince right to be concerned about this? I think it's a reality, but it's obviously something that's been going on for some time now. If you if you look back over the last sort of, you know, 15, 20 years, the formats that data was stored on has changed vastly in that time. And, you know, already, the, you know, there's stuff that's sitting around that nobody will ever be able to access or get their hands on. I think probably more aware of it now um, but then you know it comes down to the value if people actually value the information they'll make more effort to, to try and sort of store it and move it on um, showing my age here but you know having moved from you know when you listen to your music and <laughs> looking back at all the you know trying to take things off the radio years ago and, and uh, get to the tape to stop and start again when the DJ had stopped to, you know stop talking um, and also looking at the types of cameras that we've used as mm. well um, you know, I'd still try and print things off because I'm not sure whether the, yeah. the, the photographs that I've saved of my kids from the last few years growing up, all the videos I've taken, the, the, whether I'll ever actually be able to sort of play them back again to them when they're older. And, and life I think there is a generational thing with that because, you know, I think sort of up to sort of probably people in their, their 30s and above are exactly the same. You know, they, they will print off pictures, you know, they'll try and sort of create the physical sort of, copies of, of the, the media, you know, especially things like photographs, uh, whereas anybody sort of younger than 30, just that's not even a concept for them, a printer would. You know, it's yeah. they just it's all on their phone or all on their computer and they don't ever think about it. And like you say, the computer dies or the, um, you know, they lose the power pack or something, they can no longer access that anymore, but they don't kind of think about it. I guess it, it kind of depends what he's talking about. You know, if he's talking about, you know, human beings' personal memories, then... I think that's less of a concern, you know, because we all have a shelf life and we'll all disappear eventually. I think the bigger the bigger thing he's probably talking about and more concerned about is the the society size problems, you know. How did we deal with child pornography? How did we deal with um, you know, uh, DDoS attacks against corporations, how did we deal with um, breaking down racism over the years and, and how did we use technology to actually fix those problems? Um, and you know, when you look at things like um, even World War Two, you know, we're what, 50, 60 years, um, maybe longer than that now, um, beyond World War Two, and we're already getting to a point where 
the last human beings who were involved in that conflict are, are disappearing from the planet, and so their memories are gone, their experiences are gone, their their history is gone with it. But how do we capture that, and how do we? But there's still new information it? appearing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think technology is helping us with that. Though. Um, I think when you look at uh, a lot of the cloud technologies, a lot of the, the long-term archiving technologies that we've got available to us now. Um, those are becoming more and more sophisticated. They're becoming more and more um, useful to us as a, as a you know, society. Um, I think we'll eventually reach a point where we're going to have to have museums for, te- for that sort of technology. You know, we've already got some of them. You know, you look at some of the places like um, archive.org, for example, um, which is a really, really simple example, but it's basically storing copies of mm-hmm. old websites. Mm-hmm. You know, just so that we've got them somewhere. Um, and I think protecting those types of organisations is, is what companies like Google should actually be focusing on. Because, I mean, you do have the thing, if you look back to sort of, you know, the way it was done previously with books and papers, you know, microfiche yeah. that was used to store things and allow, you know, you know, articles and, and bits of information to, to be distributed. And yet you need something equivalent on, on a yeah. digital front to do the same thing. Um, but it is, it becomes a vast amount of data and then the choices of what you actually store, what you archive. Is, you know, part of the problem part. is the volume issue because, yeah. I mean, like Jane, um, you'll take a photograph, or you would take a photograph, and you'd take one photograph. You might take two, and that would be it. And these would be your precious photographs. Now, if I'm taking a photograph, I'll have the camera set so it takes six frames a second, yeah. and I'll have thousands of photographs. So you know, even one instant in time, I've got hundreds and hundreds of photographs. And how do you even sort through that? How do you even manage it? It's just. It's information overload. Which is where you come back to your data analysts and you know, being savvy and organisations being more savvy with the data that they do capture. Yeah. What's the important bit of the data and what's the bit that actually that can be archived away somewhere but, but we need access to the so other stuff. Getting back to our business though, it's the same in business. They've got exactly the same problem. They have got enormous amounts of data yeah. and it's not as if and it's arriving at such a rate that you actually can't sort through it. You either store it all yeah. or, you know, you, you cherry pick a few, but it, and the last one's usually not an option. So it is, it is a total challenge. But funny, I suppose, as Jonathan was saying, that this digital side of things helping because to some extent we were, were all tied into some kind of analog technologies. And, and in our game, again, uh, looking at you know, backup and things like this, you know, you're looking at if, if you store things on tape you better be sure that you've got exactly the same kit yeah. for reading it back. Mm-hmm. And in 10 years' time, or 21 years' time perhaps, when you want to read that record, you've still got that kit running. And that's an enormous challenge, whereas moving things onto you know, a, more of a sort of digital plane, uh, more of a cloud plane, that removes that because the technologies underneath can move. But if you like, the, the data stays the same. It doesn't solve the data format problem, but you know, it goes a long way. Well, I suppose it, it is often said that the one word that we've uh, overlooked or lost in the English language uh, is the word delete. And mm. that, uh, everything now out of fear factor is, uh, in the photographs is an interesting one because not only do you take six photographs, uh, as you said there, Bill, but you've probably got them stored on six different mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, facilities. You know, we, we post them to Facebook, to Instagram, to Twitter. Um, on our hard drives, our phones, etc. So one photograph could end up um, appearing in six different locations and stored in six different locations. So, but it'll be interesting to see where we where we get with that one and whether we look back uh, possibly in twelve months' time to see if anybody's come back with uh, some answers to to Vince's point. 
But uh, my final story before uh, I open up the uh, uh, stories that have caught the imagination feature around the table was the um, the one with the beautifully named Lizard Squad, um, which uh, from the outside doesn't uh, fill you with dread. So, thoughts on Lizard Squad? And uh, actually, and tied into this, and I've only just thought of this, Anonymous as well, and their response to uh, to some of the uh, terrorism uh, activity that we've uh, sadly witnessed recently. Are we going to see a rise of, of if you like, DDoS for hire? Yes, um, and, and I think there's, there's no question we have seen a rise of it. Um, certainly within our business, we are seeing um, weekly growth on, on DDoS attacks within the networks that we monitor and observe. Um, Ironically, I think one of the other big news stories about the Internet of Things is, is proliferating that problem. It's giving them more devices, more bandwidth, more capability to carry out these attacks. And, and most often, they are incredibly simplistic attacks. You know, they're, they're not overly complicated. We're not talking about you know, we're not talking about Neo from the Matrix here sitting you know hacking his way through lines and lines of programming code. What they're talking about is basically hordes of physical machines basically being slave to a master and, and pointed at it in one direction and said, right, off you go, go kill it. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a huge challenge for um, not just the internet as a, an industry, but also for, you know, for business you know, to, to, to protect themselves against that, that type of attack. Um, obviously Sony, Microsoft, they obviously caught the brunt of it over Christmas um, with, with their gaming networks being taken offline for, for days at a time. Um, and I guess the, you know, the challenge is who do you empower to enforce and, and find you know, the, the perpetrators of it? You know, that's, I think that's the biggest challenge of it. I mean, are, are we saying, is this something sort of like a, a bunch of, uh, of people that are doing it for kicks because they can? Or, or is it something more, is this just a precursor to something more sinister? I mean, the, the arguments that were given about taking Xbox and Sony down um, at Christmas was. Kids should be out um, wrapping their Christmas presents and dancing in the streets and mm. playing snowballs and shouldn't be tied to uh, technology over the Christmas period, which you could argue is quite lame. But was it more about, look what we've managed to do to Sony and, and Xbox rather than any real reason behind it? Or is there. I think you probably have a combination of it. You know, you'll have the, the ones out there who are doing it because you, you just they, they want to show that they are more powerful or smarter than these big organisations, that these big organisations are not infallible um, and that, you know, they're just out to kind of make a point. You've got the other ones who are doing, coming at it from um, some sort of, you know, like, you know, the uh, attitude that they're trying to actually do everybody a favour, you know, it's, it's for... Pointing out vulnerabilities. Yeah, yeah, you know, so I think, you know, you do get a combination and you've got the ones that are just doing it out of sheer badness, it's just, you know... It's fun to do, and and it's ironic that if they're saying that it's you know the, the the idea behind the Christmas ones was to get kids out playing. These are people that have sat there behind the computers, playing on the computers for hours on end, working out how they're going to do these things. Yet they're sort of trying to push a different viewpoint onto someone else. But um, you know, I think what has to come out of it at the end of the day is for a lot of these big organisations to stop sitting there in the systems and think that actually because they are big that they're 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 not vulnerable. You know, at the end of the day. For them, it's a bit of downtime, but the, the, the implications, you know, the actual fact that data is getting stolen, you know, people's you know, credit card information is going, you know, for, for the end user, that's actually quite a big impact. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that worries me about the whole thing is, is just how actually easy it is. We're talking about basically a couple of kids 
who have been attacking major corporations. But if you actually look at it, you know, obviously we've got the, the problems in Ukraine at the moment and the next thing they're saying is we're going to have problems in, in the Baltics and Putin and Co are going to be doing the same thing there. And they're talking about the rapid, they're talking about how it's going to be done and one of the, the key things they're concerned about is DDoS attacks against the countries in the, the Baltic. And the funny thing, if you look at the history, how easy it is, in 2007, Lithuania was brought down via DDoS attack because a website said that Russia had fixed the voting in the Eurovision Song Contest, and that was enough to bring the country <laughs> down. So you, you can imagine what, if, if a couple of guys, little guys, can bring down Flexasoni, you know, what can the Russians and the Chinese and the North Koreans really do if mm. they put their mind to it? I think yeah. it's, a, it's a double-edged sword. I really, I mean, DDoS in general, in terms of how do we how do we mitigate it, how do we stop it, how do we um, stop it from impacting on businesses and impacting on our general lives, is you know that's obviously a key concern. On the flip side of that, though, you've got the other way. You've got some of the comments made by David Cameron and Obama in the last sort of month or so, where they were talking about um, whether encryption was appropriate for the internet. Um, and you know, should should governments have access to, to see deeper into your sort of digital life? So I think it's a it's a really dangerous topic um, to to talk about fixing the problem from a centralised government perspective um, because it, it does open up access to other other routes which will make the internet a much less pleasant place to, to reside. Yeah, that there is always the fear that it will be used by the state as the yeah. reason that yeah. they've been looking for to yeah. put controls well, over you look the at internet. China, North Korea, um, yeah. countries like that where they have those strict controls in place where they don't allow encryption, they don't allow, you know, VPN traffic in and out of the company uh, the country, sorry. And, you know I think it's just too restrictive. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, uh, without sounding too cliched about it, the internet is a very young, unique, beautiful thing at the moment. You know, there, there are there are things you can do with the internet that you just couldn't have imagined possible fifty years ago. No, and I think that has to be protected. We have to be quite careful that we don't let things like you know DDoS attacks against single corporations that take you know, rel- as Anne was saying, relatively low risk, low impact things offline. We don't allow that to. Escalate to a point where we're, we're taking issue with the, the, the liberty and the freedom that we've got on the internet. Yeah. Well, I think we should always be um, mindful of Sir Tim Berners Lee. You know, this is for everyone. I yes. mean, they, they could have, right at the early days, either monetarised the internet or Absolutely. or locked it down for government use only. But no, yeah. I mean, don't mean, obviously, obviously it, has its, it has its roots in government, yeah. you know, it has its roots in, in DARPA in, in the US and things like that. but it's going way beyond that. I think. Yeah. You know, we have to be careful that we don't allow it to go the other, the other way. Okay. Right. Any other stories that captured anybody's imagination? Or? Can, can I follow on from that one then? Because yeah, one thing that, that caught my attention was uh, a story in New Scientist about uh, basically dark leaks, which is uh, an interesting thing. It's, it's a place where you, know, you can basically put up information, you know, leak information so again there's a, a whole bunch of other sites around the world for whistleblowers etc etc but where it's a bit different is you can actually monetize it so you can put your secrets up there and people can purchase those secrets using bitcoins um, and that sort of <laughs> coming following on from Jonathan there 
that sort of changes things uh, in, in, in quite interesting ways. So there's kind of two parts to it is A, you know, up till now, um, you know, leaks and putting secrets up there, it's been, you know, more about the public good. Mm. This is more about personal gain. But the other side to it is actually using bitcoins to tag information and actually using bitcoins to sell other things. So it sort of moves that that whole thing into a different place. So I think the combination of these two things, I think it's a, that is actually a really interesting um, new development. It's a combination of two things, but it's really quite powerful and potentially really quite scary. And lucrative, I would and think, lucrative. at the end of the day. <laughs> yes. secrets. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But this is an example of data leaks where you can take a Bitcoin and split a Bitcoin, and the Bitcoin can be a token for something else. Yeah. So you could have a Bitcoin which is of relatively low value, but yeah. it's attached to something of a relatively high value. Yeah. So it changes it from a currency to a token of ownership, yeah. which is, again, a, a real a real shift. Yeah. Hard to get your head around. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Uh, the only other thing that sort of caught my attention was the... Um, was the, the, the article I think it's today actually um, around about the um, fingerprint logins for the banks? Oh, yes, which terrifies me. Um, quite frankly, <laughs> um, mainly because we're already, we're already at a point where uh, technology is allowing you to log in by a fingerprint. So you're then going to log into your physical device using your fingerprint, and you're even log into your virtual app using a fingerprint too. I just think you know when you're talking about things of that scale and that nature, you know, two-factor authentication. At a minimum, is, is just utterly mandatory. Uh, I think I think I think it's bonkers, quite frankly, that the banks are even considering it at this stage. Yeah, I have to say, um, it also really 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 scares me because I've seen the film Demolition Man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want my thumb being chopped off so someone can get my bank details. No, no. <laughs> But then it's also a lot easier if if somebody mugs someone to just say to them, right, okay. Put yeah. your thumb on there. You know, it's you know you can force them to do it. Yeah, I want to be beaten up significantly <laughs> before I hand over my bank. I'm going to go back to something really quite old-fashioned now. Actually, email. <laughs> email. Yeah, email. I remember that. Do anybody remember that? Um, because uh, Roy Kathleen Jones has been writing about it, um, saying, "Is email broken? Um, you know, is it something that certainly the younger generation are just now not using at all to communicate with?" Um, is it sort of slightly old fogies like us that are still uh, are still into email? And he kind of did an audit. He just decided to just kind of do an audit one day. And he was saying uh, the day he chose wasn't particularly busy. He still re- received 275 emails. 70 of them were kind of, you know, emails he was copied into at work. Um, and from a PR perspective, it made me laugh because he, he was talking about the number of emails he got from PR folk who wanted to try and convince him that the BBC needed to hear their stories. He got 50 relating to the Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, and he, he said, I'm afraid some of the people behind them need to go back to the email academy. Dear sir or madam is never a good start, and when the email continues, an infrastructure, COTS, hardware solution provider for telecom and cloud networks, is demonstrating new game-changing NFV and SDN-enabled reference solutions in collaboration with industry partners during the Mobile World Congress, the only response is to reach for a dictionary. So, um, as a message to us all, he sort of, you know, he was sort of saying that email is still important um, because he wouldn't give on it, uh, up on it altogether. Uh, certainly in the short term, because occasionally 
in amongst all the gobbledygook, there is a gem, there is something you need to know, um, but we all need to get better at emails. They need to be shorter, more concise, and you know, stick yeah. to the useful yeah. stuff and don't bombard with people well, with things like that. I did an audit uh, on my email um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, just on one day, I decided to count my emails, and I'm not talking about spam, I'm talking about emails that people expected me to read and perhaps respond or at least know. And I had 165 in one day. That was after I deleted all the junk. It was not marketing email. This was just people who expected okay, me to Okay, you junk, Bill. But do you not find as well, though, I mean, so within a within a business environment, yes, email's still very much kind of, you know, in use you know, throughout the day, etc. But, um, you know, from a personal level, in your personal email, unless it's something to do with a product or service or marketing email, it's, it's becoming far and far rarer to actually have personal emails. You know, so you know, letter writing has become a thing of the past. But now, even email mm-hmm. writing from mm-hmm. a you know, hey, how are you doing, has become a th- thing of the past. I think the only ones that I receive is from aunt and uncle, you know, abroad, who send me the sort of Christmas email of here's what's been happening with us. But other than that, yeah. you know, you, you don't get it. These days, your only communication with people are, are either over a text message or. The yeah. odd sort of you know, messaging, yeah, Facebook app, yeah. but it's, it's much, think, much reason. I think most, uh, not all, but most businesses have moved past email as the messaging solution. Um, you know, we, if we look at ourselves, for example, you know, we use a combination of email, link, confluence, um, and occasionally um, the coffee machine to, to get the message across and get in and have those conversations. Right? A face-to-face conversation. I'll <laughs> never What's catch that? on. It's terrifying. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think email is still used as the, almost the if you need something documented yeah. And, yeah. And, and kept. You yeah. know, so if you want a trail of work. Trail, yeah. 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 If you want someone to blame, you use email. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to get something and done, you use something else. As, as a tip, because uh, I, I receive a similar amount of emails to, to Bill every day, any email that starts with just circling back or, or reaching out. Or reaching out. <laughs> just hit that delete key. Because you know it's not going to be good. So poor old Rory's probably going to get 50 there from the uh, Barcelona conference saying, hey, yeah. just circling back, Rory. Yeah, I didn't hear from you well, last time. He signed off saying he had 190 unread messages and he needed to get oh, back to work. <laughs> terrible. Okay then. Well, there you have it. Those were the stories that have piqued our interest uh, during February. And uh, now we're going to hand over to Jane, who's going to give us an overview of the Data Safe Heaven and Data Hell seminar. Well, this month, our brand Backup Technology hosted an event to discuss data storage and backup and to explain how it had worked with NetApp to create a global solution to meet Perno Ricard's needs. We caught up with the presenters, Gary Hocking from NetApp, Simon Bennett from Perno Ricard and Mark Bailey from the law firm Charles Russell Speechleys and asked them for their thoughts on data storage, data protection and the legal implications for business. First of all, here's what Gary Hocking had to say. If you're looking at putting a copy of your very important data with an organization who's going to manage it, who's going to provide all the functionality and the safety and the protection that you need, um, you've got a lot of choices that you can make. And one of those choices is clearly the political landscape, the economic landscape, in some cases even the geographic landscape, as to where in the cloud you want that data to reside. Backup technology has data centers here in the UK that offer 
not only the best of the technical features, but give customers the assurance that their data is in a country with a stable government, a country with a stable economy, um, a country with all sorts of various benefits in relation to the context of the world we live in where there is lots of instability and lots of uncertainty. The topic of data protection uh, is really the, the secondary topic. The real topic is data as an asset. We're coming very quickly to the belief that all data has a value. It doesn't matter whether the data is five minutes old, five days old, or 105 years old. Very, very old data is now not only playing a key role in the decision-making process of lots of organizations, but it is now becoming an asset that other people might pay for. If you recognize that data is an asset, clearly you want to do everything you can to protect the assets you have. Simon Bennett then revealed the challenges of data protection and different regulations. Data protection is um, very important from two perspectives. Um, operationally, our businesses um, rely more and more on their IT systems and on the data um, within them. So you know, that's, that's critical that we're able to um, uh, guarantee that we've protected that data. But also from a regulatory perspective, Prenericar is an alcoholic beverages uh, company has to comply to uh, certain uh, regulations uh, and uh, it's essential that we're able to provide data that, that's required by the authorities in each of the markets. What's essential is to have a, a flexible solution that gives you the ability to store locally um, or to store uh, remotely uh, from each country or each site. Um, so I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all um, solution because the regulations uh, aren't, uh, aren't all the same. Uh, so flexibility um, is the key. And Mark Bailey, a legal authority on all things data, had some pretty interesting insights too. Data protection is not everyone's favourite subject, I think it's fair to say. Um, it can be extremely intrusive. It's also a very political instrument. Um, the European Commission, for example, takes a very different view on data protection from the United States. Data protection is fundamentally driven by protecting us as individuals, not necessarily the rights and benefits and value that uh, businesses can extract from data. As such, uh, you have to go right back to first principles when you're looking at data protection and to consider uh, the implications on your business. In block terms at the moment around the world, there are a number of areas which uh, comply principally with uh, the European data protection model. Those countries uh, are all um, now deemed to have adequate data protection processes, which means that in many cases uh, the data transfer solutions that can be employed um, are therefore fairly flexible um, around the world. Um, data transfer and location of itself should not be um, the only issue that drives data um, and data storage. Think about your European dimension, think about your national dimension, think about the specific laws and requirements that apply and then act on the basis of um, careful advice on uh, data location, data sovereignty and also practicality. We're going to continue our big data theme now with Jonathan Williamson who's going to provide a rundown of the different solutions that are available for data storage. Take it away JW. Thanks Jane. Um, hi folks, we're going to talk a little bit today um, about two 
uh, storage solutions in particular, which IOMAR are, are particularly good at delivering. Um, obviously, everyone will be familiar at this stage with shared storage. Um, whether that shared storage comes from a NAS box that you've bought yourself and you've got on-house and in-premise, um, or whether it's something you're picking up from AWS through their S3 storage capability. Um, shared storage is, is, is becoming more and more prevalent. Um, your basic fundamentals basically mean you've got a really big box of stuff and uh, it's carved up into smaller chunks and you take what you need. IOMAR um, have been at the forefront of shared storage technology for a number of years now and our most recent investment um, has been through EMC's VMAX 10K platform. Um, and the VMAX uh, gives an incredible level of service delivery. Um, it's massively scalable, uh, incredibly performant um, and provides a really solid uh, option for enterprise storage uh, requirements has the ability to, to scale from uh, low-end storage where you're maybe looking at bulk storage for images which you you, you, know, you can keep on disk for a long period of time without accessing right the way through to the, the, the ultra uh, you know, performance tier where you've got a database um, that requires very very quick storage um, massive number of IOPS and that can all be scaled within the same box um, the best part about it, obviously, is that we can move you from one storage tier to another um, with no interruption, uh, no cause of downtime, and it's a it's a really excellent uh, proposition if you're if you're in the area looking for shared storage. In terms of the scalability of the VMAX product, um, we find it to be um, incredibly useful from that perspective. Um, the, the device that we are currently managing at the moment uh, scales up to 1.76 petabytes worth of storage, which um, is more than enough for the vast majority of people out there. Um, and overall, it's a, it's a good platform to start on. Um, we can also deliver guaranteed IOPS um, through that product as well. Um, so if you've got a requirement or a service which is going to use um, a, you know, you understand what your storage requirements are going to be, we can deliver guaranteed IOPS um, to your platform, which is uh, excellent if you're looking for uh, persistent storage. The other thing I'm going to talk about um, a little bit about is uh, also from EMC. Um, and ties in quite nicely to both uh, EMC's VMAX uh, and their lower tier arrays, um, EMC's uh, VNX SANS. Um, continuing in the V uh, scheme of things, um, the EMC VPlex um, deals with active-active storage technology. So if you imagine the scenario where you have your live production services running from one physical location um, and your boss comes along and says, hey, guess what, we need um, a second location up and we need to keep them both online at exactly the same time. Um, that's traditionally quite a hard challenge um, and something which you have to spend an awful lot of time and effort um, at the application layer um, resolving. Um, so whether that's introducing global site load balancing or maybe that's tweaking your application so that it's no longer reliant on a single database server. Uh, all of these challenges are, are things which are well known within the developer community and are traditionally quite difficult to achieve um, unless you're starting with a, a fresh uh, greenfield site where you can build the application um, to suit. Where VPlex comes in um, is it gives us the ability to put your storage in two different locations, um, to put your virtual machine infrastructure in two different locations, but from the application's perspective, as far as it's concerned, it's in the same data centre. Um, so it virtualizes your storage is probably the simplest way to, to imagine it. Um, it carries out replication um, between the two sites um, and it keeps everything in sync and, and as far as your applications are aware they're sitting in the same rack, the same physical box and 
are sitting right next to each other, when in actual fact, um, the underlying infrastructure is in perhaps London and, say, Maidenhead. Um, so you've got massive um, geographical distance between the two locations. As far as your applications are concerned, it's all good. It's all in the same place. This obviously gives you um, a number of benefits. The first one is your disaster recovery solution is no longer active-passive. So there's no longer a painful um, failover mechanism to go between um, your current live services and your DR service. Um, there's no worry about data replication going from one place to another. You, you have that data available in both places at the same time. Um, and it's generally um, seen as being uh, arguably the best um, technical solution for active-active um, multi-site solutions. Um, I'm currently operating two of those devices at the moment. Um, for, for uh, two or three different customers um, and obviously we'd love to speak to you if you've got that sort of requirement um, and you think you could use some advice or some guidance on, on how best to implement that sort of solution we think would be a, a great place to help you. That's kind of it. So in quick summary, um, from a storage perspective, the things that we are, we are looking at right now um, is say the, the VMAX 10K uh, for shared storage solutions. If you're looking for small amounts of storage or large amounts of storage, but at a very cheap cost point and a, and a strong SLA-backed service, then the VMAX 10K would be a great opportunity for you. Um, and if you're looking at something a little bit more complicated, um, a, little more, a little bit more demanding, um, then EMC's VPLEX would be uh, also a great fit. Um, and something which we'd love to speak to about. So uh, that's it for this month. Um, thanks for listening and uh, speak to you again soon. So thanks for that, uh, Jonathan. Our final comment for today is, uh, and we touched upon this uh, earlier in the news stories, is wearable technology. Wearable technology is beyond a buzzword now. Um, and uh, it's here to stay, uh, and unfortunately, We'll probably have this conversation in three years' time and we'll be wearing about six or nine pieces each of various wearable technology. This in the week, of course, that uh, Apple have announced their five million uh, watches are on the way, um, which is all we need. But thinking about this, there are watches, there are headbands, there are glasses, there are bandages on the way. I believe there's going to be various sporting apparel. But starting with you, Jonathan, if you had to create a piece of wearable tech, what would you create? I think it's already been created. I'm going to, I'm going to use a really simple get out on that one because I do think it's already been created. I think the, the bit of usual tech has just been launched in the last few weeks and has and has been sort of iterated on by numerous different businesses is the, the Fitbit um, or the Garmin or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. The thing that's going to be tracking you from a, from a health perspective, I think that's going to be um, the bit of technology that will really take off. I think the the smartwatches initially were a good idea, you know, having you know, Android on your wrist, having iOS on your wrist is a good idea, but functionally um, it wasn't really that interesting for most people. I think when you tie it in with, you know, we can keep a track of your heartbeat, we can keep a track of how many steps you're taking, how many you know, staircases you're going up and down. I think when you look at the society question about obesity and um, children, sort of, you know, how, how do they stay healthy, I think that's going to be one of the big things that we're going to use to actually engage young people now. Is you know getting that technology, feeding it into their Facebook feeds or Instagram or whatever it is, you know, and, and using that data to, to enhance it. Um, so I think that's where we'll go with it. I think that's that's going to be the, the biggest thing, um, certainly in the near future. Um, I don't have mine on sadly, but uh, I do have one at home. So. And a boom for insurance companies. And, and yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was talking to one of our, our other colleagues um, who. 
um, is getting money off his life insurance because you know yep. he's, he's doing more and more exercise, um, and he's proving that by showing you know, his results. By showing his results, yep. you know, it's it's, uh, it's actually appealing as opposed to the car variant of that where you stick something in your car and you have to go at sixty miles an hour, you know, which I think nobody's interested in doing. You know. <laughs> On a motorway, obviously. We're not condoning speeding for anybody that uh, <laughs> might be listening here from Her Majesty's Law Enforcement Agents. Anne? Um, for me, it would be sort of the next sort of extension of Google Glass. I, I, you know, I always think it would be a really interesting thing if they could work out contact lenses that could do things like take pictures, video things. So you're literally walking along, you see something, you don't have to worry about a camera or a phone or anything. You can just do something. Now, obviously, it's a bit far out there. Can you imagine if you see would Can you imagine? You know, but you, you see things, and you, no camera can actually capture what you're seeing. You know, so that, to be able to do it just with, you know, with a blink of the eye, essentially, and then taking a, a step further, the whole thing with the Google Glass of being able to sort of see things, and you've seen it in films before, yeah. where they literally, you know, it's there in the contact lens and they're seeing it. But I, I just think that would be the coolest thing. Ever. But um, I think that's quite a way off. Quite a way off. I'm not sure yeah. it is. I'm not sure it is because yeah. they're already. Um, They've already launched contact lenses that have got uh, the electronics in them. Yeah. So I don't think it's like, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's, you know, it's still a big leap. Patent that. It's still <laughs> but um, I don't think it's a, a million miles away. Jane? Well, as a mum, I'm oh. going to go to my son's eternal use of Xbox and things like that. I'd love a vest that they could wear that when they play too much, it shuts off. <laughs> so they can't play it anymore. <laughs> That's what I'd invent. You might want to Sorry. just unplug the Sorry, router. And <laughs> flick a fuse in the my, fuse box. My yeah. eternal arguments with it. Yeah. Right, so we're, we're self-wearing vest that tells you you've had too much Too time. much Xbox. Okay. I'm not sure that will find a market. I don't think it will. <laughs> Bill. Um, well, I'm actually working on some wearable technology with one of our colleagues at the moment. Um, one of our colleagues makes handbags. And I'm actually, we're trying to build lighting into the handbags. And uh, one of the interesting things for me, so that, that's all just going lovely, so you'll be able to push a switch. Have you got a patent on Your that? Your handbag well? will light <laughs> up. I think, there are, I think there already are patents involved. But anyway, let's, let's gloss over that. But the interesting thing for me is, the, just looking at this is the number of components that are actually out there. So we're talking about really, you know, fancy things like contact lenses and all the rest of it. But there's a whole set of components now that you can actually that anyone can build into clothes. Anyone can connect with, you know, a piece of uh, electrical thread, and you know these power supplies, switches, you know, GPS, the the, the whole shooting match. So. Actually, you know, what might be coming along next is probably stuff that, you know, we haven't thought of and it, it's going to be, you know, relatively easy for ordinary people to just put together themselves from, you know, component sets which you can just buy over the internet. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. The obvious stuff is, is, is the fitness stuff, but I think there's going to be, you know, perhaps when you're looking for that pair of socks, you'll be able to find it because you'll be able to get there. You know, GPS coordinates yeah, and then going them down, you know. Brilliant. Yeah. I think the health industry, I mean, it's massive for the health industry, isn't it? You know, it the, how they can use wearable tech to uh, monitor patients and, mm. you know, uh, work out what's happening within the body by, you know, sticking a bandage on the outside and all the rest of it is quite incredible what they're coming the, up with. Some of the videos on YouTube of doctors who are uh, making use of the GoPros now. Um, yeah. for, for, for basically sort of post-operation analysis of you know, what they were doing, why they did it that way and 
almost protecting themselves from, especially in America, from lawsuits and things like that. Several examples of that on YouTube where it's, you know, it's, like, it's literally heart surgery, um, and they've got the, the camera strapped to their head purely so they can protect themselves from you know something going horribly wrong. Um, I don't think we're, I don't think we're takes. Uh, I think it, it's so natural now that um, it will be there forever. You just see iterations of it. Well, I think my uh, to finish with it's the thirtieth anniversary this year of uh, Back to the Future. Has and I know they're coming into production. I'm so excited about it. The self-tying baseball boot. <laughs> it was DeLoreans there. For no, a no, no, no. Hoverboard never worked. No, hover, hoverboards we've got. Hoverboards we've got, and I don't really count that as wearable tech. That's more transportation. I think. That's true. But yes. I love, personally, I love the jacket that dries itself. Yes, yep. in Scotland that, after all. That's true. <laughs> that's true. Might, yes, but would it ever get the chance to dry itself? That'd be this the question. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for that. That brings us to the to the end of our first IMAR podcast. Um, Hopefully um, you're still with us out there and uh, you'll want to check into the next one. I'm led to believe we have a schedule and I'm led to believe it's the last Friday of every month. So if you'd like to catch up with us and at the next one we will definitely have a review of a rather exciting show that we will have been to in March, Cloud Expo, where we are going to be doing some rather interesting things on a stand that is built to mimic a rainforest. Um, so if you want to get down with the bats um, and you're at Cloud Expo, feel free to join us stand 220 and uh, we might be joined by our own king of the jungle hopefully on the first day uh, a certain mr bullard so if you are down make sure you pop along to stand 220 at cloud expo uh, we will review the show and uh, not just our stand but some of the things that catch our eye as we wander around the show and funnily enough the wearable tech show is on at the same time as well so we will come back with reports on what will be the next piece of of, of, of items that we'll be wearing next year but until then, thank you very much. I'd like to thank Jane, I'd like to thank Jonathan, I'd like to thank Bill, and finally I'd like to thank Anne. And I'm just delighted that I remembered my four colleagues' names, which just about made up for my horrendous introduction. Thank you very much. I've been Phil Worms. Good afternoon, good night, good morning, whenever you listen to this.